This episode is sponsored by TrueLearn, an exam prep company best known for their smart banks that turn your weak areas into your strengths. TrueLearn is the only company I trusted for Comlex Level 1 prep last year and Level 2 prep this year. Each TrueLearn practice question has detailed answer explanations and concise bottom lines for customizable studying. TrueLearn also has amazing USMLE smart banks, as well as subscriptions for shelf or comat exams. Go to TrueLearn.com and use one of my special discount codes I have for up to $35 off your subscription. Special discount codes can be found in the episode description. TrueLearn is the first line solution for excelling on exams. My name is Aubrey Ann Jackson, and this is First Line. Here to bring listeners of all backgrounds together to discuss whole body health and wellness. Through an osteopathic lens, First Line covers tangible ways to improve your health, hot topics in healthcare, the journey to becoming a physician, mental health, relationships, and even philosophy, all while holistically addressing the whole person, body, mind, and spirit. If you've listened to my previous episode, you know that I am in the middle of my OBGYN rotation. So women's health is at the forefront of my focus. The majority, I would say, of the patients that I see are pregnant, whether they're about to deliver or they're coming in for their first prenatal visit. So this episode is all about the behind the scenes of what your doctor is thinking of when you come in as a pregnant woman. What we monitor, why we monitor certain things, what kind of complications you can potentially have during pregnancy, and general information of good things to know before you decide to get pregnant, and also when you are first pregnant. Some things that maybe your doctor won't necessarily share with you, but should. One thing that you might notice when you were pregnant is that your doctor will likely measure your belly. And what they're measuring is the distance from your pubic symphysis, which is just a cartilage and a joint between two parts of your pubic bone. The distance between that and your fundus of your uterus, which is the top part of your uterus might be hard for you to feel on yourself, but your doctor knows how to look for the fundus, and they measure in between in centimeters, and that distance in centimeters is roughly equal to how many weeks pregnant you are, or it should be. At 20 weeks of pregnancy, that fundus is usually going to be felt about where your belly button is. Usually, we want it to be within three weeks of your actual gestational age. You might be, let's say, 20 weeks, but your symphysis fundal height measurement might be 19, and that is totally fine, totally healthy. It could even be as low as 17, and it can go as high as 23. Usually, when it is an abnormal measurement, The follow-up is with ultrasound to more definitively see how big the fetus is and estimating 
what their weight is and also measuring the volume of amniotic fluid as well to kind of pinpoint why your uterus is too big or too small because this is kind of just a screening because the majority of women coming in are going to have a normal size fetus for their gestational age and a normal size uterus normal amount of amniotic fluid so we use this as a screening because it's non-invasive it takes about five seconds to do this measurement so it means that we don't have to do an ultrasound on everyone every time that they come in it's only those that do not fall within the range that is expected of the symphysis bundle height Another thing we test for during pregnancy is for group B streptococcus colonization. And how we test for that is that pregnant women around 36 to 38 weeks gestation will get a rectovaginal GBS culture done, which means that we swab the vagina and then we swab the rectum and we send it off to the lab and see if they can grow GBS. A lot of women will have GBS colonization, which means that the bacteria is present either in the vagina or the rectum, but it does not cause infection. It just means that it is there. So women will not have symptoms that they have a GBS colonization. For a lot of women, they're just part of the normal flora. However, GBS colonization does present a risk for severe infection in the neonate, in the newborn baby. And this infection is caused by the mother transmitting that to the baby during vaginal birth. This infection in the newborn can cause sepsis, so a blood infection, pneumonia, meningitis, and sometimes it is so severe that it can cause death. So that's why we check for this around 36 weeks. And women that are positive for GBS will receive intravenous antibiotics, usually penicillin, unless they're allergic, about four hours before they give birth. Another infection that we worry about is influenza or the flu. Influenza during pregnancy is more likely to be complicated, requiring hospitalization, because it can cause pneumonia and even mortality. So the recommendation is that all pregnant women receive the inactivated flu vaccine, which is the one that you get in your arm, it's intramuscular, and they should get that as soon as it becomes available during flu season, which will be in the fall around September. The flu vaccine is great because it decreases the mother's morbidity, like I said, a lot of intensive care unit admissions during pregnancy, and it also provides passive neonatal immunity because, as you may know, I did talk about this during my pediatric episode, the baby receives passive immunity from the mother, so whatever the mother is immune to, the baby will also be immune to the first six months of life. Especially if the baby is born during flu season, you can't give the vaccine to the baby, but you can give the vaccine to mom and mom can pass that immunity on to baby. Another thing we do during pregnancy is something called a non-stress test. 
And this just means that mom is sitting in a chair and we hook up some monitors to her to measure the fetal heart rate. And we give her a button to press that she can press anytime she feels fetal movement. And it's watching the relationship between the fetal heart rate and fetal movement over time. We are looking for something called a reactive test. And that test is one that will show what we call accelerations, which means that the heart rate increases for a period of time and then goes back to the usual heart rate that we call the baseline. And an acceleration is defined as this increase in heart rate uh, lasting for 15 seconds at least and peaks at 15 beats per minute above what the baseline is. And we look for two of these accelerations to happen within 20 minutes. So it is a time-consuming test to do, but really important. Accelerations are a part of a healthy fetus. Not all pregnancies will get the non-stress test. That's only with high-risk pregnancies, like if mom has preeclampsia or gestational hypertension or gestational diabetes and other risk factors like pre-existing hypertension, pre-existing diabetes, things like that, then non-stress test is usually something that is encouraged to do regularly. Then there's something called the biophysical profile, which is similar in that it is a monitoring to see how healthy baby is. And this measures both the fetal heart rate reactivity and also different things on ultrasound, including fetal tone, fetal movement, breathing, and amniotic fluid volume. If you have normal fetal heart rate reactivity, you get two points. Normal fetal tone, two points. So you get two points for all five of these categories, which means that you have a maximum point opportunity of 10. And if you don't meet any of these criteria, if you're unhealthy in all of them, then you would get a score of zero. So a score of eight to 10 is considered normal, as long as there's also normal amniotic fluid volume. And then a score of six is suspicious. And then scores less than six, so zero, two, and four, are associated with increased morbidity and mortality of the fetus. And so everyone that has been pregnant before knows about the sugar test and this is done at 24 to 28 weeks and it's universal everyone gets it in this test for gestational diabetes so for the screening portion women are given 50 grams of oral glucose usually in the form of a sugary drink and then their serum glucose is measured at one hour the screen is positive if the serum glucose is greater than 135 milligrams per deciliter. And then for women that are positive with that, they get a diagnostic three-hour oral glucose tolerance test, which involves a 100-gram oral glucose load after at least eight hours of fasting. And then the serum glucose measurement is measured at one, two, and three hours. And that is compared to the fasting blood glucose as well. And if two readings are above the normal range, then the test is positive for gestational diabetes. So that's the two-step approach. There's also something called the one-step approach, which involves 
giving a woman who is fasting a 75 gram oral glucose load and then measuring at one hour and then at two hours. And it's positive for gestational diabetes if the fasting glucose is above 92, the one hour is above 180, or the two hour is above 153. Gestational diabetes is defined as glucose intolerance, just like type 2 diabetes is, but the gestational type obviously develops during pregnancy, and it is associated with fetal complications like macrosomia, which means a larger than normal fetus, hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, which include gestational hypertension and preeclampsia. It is associated with death of the fetus, also polyhydramnios, which means too much amniotic fluid. So why does glucose intolerance occur during pregnancy? Well, the human placental lactogen and human placental growth hormone, two different types of hormones, they cause increased insulin resistance, so your body doesn't respond to insulin like it normally does. 24 to 28 weeks is used because that's when the hormones peak, so we can make sure that we can diagnose all the women that have this. And the reason why we have insulin resistance is that it is a way for our bodies to make sure that there is a steady supply of glucose in the blood to supply to the growing fetus. However, when women may have underlining insulin resistance and they don't even have to have diabetes, they can just have any type of insulin resistance or their body is just super sensitive to this increase in insulin resistance, well, this is what can lead to gestational diabetes. And the treatment for gestational diabetes, a lot of women can treat it sufficiently with dietary modification, making sure that they are limiting their intake of carbohydrates, especially simple sugars, and making sure that they exercise plenty, which is hard to do during pregnancy, but still can be done and then regular blood sugar monitoring as well. And then for some women, insulin can be added if these more conservative interventions don't adequately control the blood glucose level. I've also seen metformin used as well for this, which is often the first-line medication for type 2 diabetes as well. Additionally, all pregnant women are screened for anemia. This is done with a blood draw uh, called a complete blood count or a CBC. And iron deficiency anemia is super common during pregnancy. A lot of women, even before pregnancy, have iron deficiency anemia to an extent. And it only worsens during pregnancy and worsens even further during childbirth because of how much blood you lose, whether that is a vaginal birth or a C-section. And this is because iron requirements increase during pregnancy as well, so that's why we monitor throughout pregnancy. Many women are recommended to take iron in a pill as well as try to fit it in dietary, especially with dark green leafy greens. 
and a lot of times prenatal vitamins will have iron in them, but not all the time, especially the prenatal gummies will often not have iron in them. So it's really important if you are taking a prenatal vitamin to actually look at the bottle and see if it has iron because usually everything else on a prenatal will pretty much be standard across the board, but some of them will and some of them won't have iron. And especially if you are a vegetarian, you may have a greater risk of iron deficiency because for Americans, one of the biggest sources of iron in the diet is with red meat. And even if you're not vegetarian and you simply don't eat a lot of red meat and you mostly eat chicken and fish, you might also be missing out on iron. Like I said, there's a lot of other sources like spinach and legumes and seeds, but that's just something to kind of be mindful of to make sure that you are getting enough of it in your diet and if you're not or you're not sure to include it in a form of a vitamin or a supplement. So during pregnancy, there's a lot of different adaptations that your body makes that you could mistake for a disease process. So it's important that I start with those first, that these are not complications, these are normal parts of pregnancy. So one is an increase in cardiac output, which just means that your heart is pumping more out. It's more productive, so it's working faster, it's working harder. And this can cause actually a heart murmur that your doctor might pick up. And that is totally normal. And then you can also have some shortness of breath, especially with a gradual onset. So it starts really mild and gets a little worse. And that is due to elevated progesterone levels that increase the respiratory rate and also the respiratory drive. So both your heart and your lungs are working faster and harder during pregnancy. And this is to support the growing fetus. You have a much greater demand. Another thing that is very common during pregnancy is having fatigue and back pain and also anemia like I mentioned. So another thing that we kind of monitor for during pregnancy is something called asymptomatic bacteriuria, which means that there are bacteria in your urine, but they're not causing any symptoms. They they don't cause an infection, they're just there. They're colonized, kind of like the GBS situation. So in normal healthy people, finding bacteria in your urine without symptoms does not get treated. That's normal. Except in pregnancy, pregnant women with bacteria in their urine are always treated because there is a risk of developing cystitis or pyelonephritis. So that is infection of the bladder and infection of the kidney. So during pregnancy, we always check for bacteria in the urine because cystitis or pyelonephritis can cause neonatal complications like preterm delivery, low birth weight, and even perinatal mortality. And usually the bacteria in the urine is screened for during the first prenatal visit and is always treated. 
And some signs of pyelonephritis, just so you are aware of, whether you're pregnant or not, you will often get flank pain, so kind of pain on your side, and it can even be pain on your back as well. You might have fever, chills, nausea, and vomiting, but you don't require all of those to have pyelonephritis. It's just that the more you have, increases the likelihood that you do have it. And a lot of times with pyelonephritis, you need to be hospitalized, especially if you have unstable vitals. If you have sepsis, so that is the infection going into your blood. If you have multi-organ failure, which is a really late complication of it. Or if you have altered mental status, if you're feeling confused or hazy. Now to talk about some of the complications of pregnancy and childbirth. Maternal mortality, so the chance of the mother dying during childbirth or during pregnancy. Some risk factors for it include advanced maternal age, so age at 35 or above, African-American or Hispanic background, and multi-fetal gestation, so having twins, having triplets, and then also obesity. So obesity is an interesting one because that is Something to talk about with your doctor at your preconception visit, so before you choose to get pregnant. It's very much recommended if you have a BMI above 30 that puts you in the obesity range. It is very much recommended that you lose weight and get into the healthy normal range before choosing to get pregnant because it will greatly lower your risk of complications. So I'm sure you've all heard of morning sickness. So that is first trimester nausea and vomiting. And this is considered physiologic. It's considered normal during pregnancy to have this. But then there's also something called hyperemesis gravidarum, which is a severe form of morning sickness. And what makes it different is that you will have vomiting with dehydration. You'll have metabolic alkalosis, which is an abnormal pH of your blood. You might have hyperkalemia, which means decreased potassium levels. You could have hyponatremia, which is low sodium levels, and hypochloremia, which is low chloride levels. So all of these are due to very extensive vomiting, vomiting so much that it knocks off all your electrolytes. And you can even have elevated hematocrit, which means that your blood is more concentrated with hemoglobin. That occurs because you are dehydrated. And hyperemesis gravidarum also involves weight loss, which you do not want to have weight loss during pregnancy. You want to gain weight during pregnancy. And so I'm sure you've heard about the importance of taking folate during pregnancy and even before pregnancy. I've usually heard that you want to be taking folate supplementation starting three months before you want to start trying to conceive. And the reason for this is to avoid something called neural 2 defects. 
and this results from failure of the neuropores to close during fetal development. So the low folate levels can cause it. Other risk factors are a family history of neural tube defects, poorly controlled diabetes, taking seizure medications, and overall having poor nutritional status. Neural tube defects used to be a lot more common than they are now, and the reason why they're a lot less common is because the uh, food manufacturers began to supplement different foods with folate, and a lot of the foods they chose to supplement are low-cost foods so that they can make sure that families with lower economic status could get enough folate in their diet without having to pay for supplements or go out of their way to buy folate infused products. So you'll see a lot of times now cereals are going to have supplementation with folate. You'll even see breads and pastas with folate. So a lot of the the grocery staples are going to have folate in them. So it's a lot less common to be folate deficient, but it is still recommended to take a prenatal vitamin that has folate, either in the form of folic acid or methylfolate. Also during pregnancy, you have increased levels of estrogen and progesterone, and these hormones can lead to something called cholestasis, which means a stagnation of your bile acids and this cholestasis leads to an increased risk of having gallstones. That's why a lot of women will have gallstones during pregnancy and those would present with pain right under your ribs on your right side. Also, increased levels of progesterone during pregnancy causes smooth muscle relaxation and decrease gastric motility, and also decrease tone of your lower esophageal sphincter. And all of these increase the risk of having gastroesophageal reflux disease. So a lot of women will complain of having reflux during pregnancy as well. Moving on to some skin manifestations of pregnancy, there's something called melasma, which presents with irregularly shaped hyperpigmented, which means a darker colored, macules, which is very similar to moles, and they're arranged symmetrically on the face. This usually resolves after pregnancy. And the only thing that you have to do for them is to avoid too much sun exposure and always use sunscreen. And lastly, I'll mention preeclampsia is defined as new hypertension during pregnancy with either proteinuria, which is protein in the urine, or evidence of end organ damage at greater than 20 weeks of gestation. Besides those diagnostic criteria, there can also be severe features, which can include blood pressure greater than 160 over 110 on two occasions at least four hours apart. You can have thrombocytopenia, which means really low platelet counts, impaired liver function, which could mean end organ damage of the liver, progressive renal insufficiency, so the kidney's not working properly, also pulmonary edema, which is fluid in the lungs, and new onset cerebral or vision 
disturbances, which can include headache as well as blurry vision. Something kind of related is H-E-L-L-P or HELP syndrome, which is a form of preeclampsia. It's more of an acronym. It stands for hemolysis, which means that your blood cells are lysing. They're being destroyed. So you're going to have low hemoglobin levels. You will be severely anemic. Elevated liver enzymes is the E and the L. The L and the P is low platelet count. And this presents with abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, and headache. It is rapidly progressive and is associated with greater risk of maternal bleeding, something called disseminated intravascular coagulation, which is a life-threatening condition, pulmonary edema, and placental abruption as well as hepatic rupture. It also increases risk of preterm delivery and perinatal mortality. Preeclampsia and HELP syndrome are both putting patients at risk for seizures, which would be called eclampsia, and that's why it's called preeclampsia. Magnesium sulfate is used in these patients to prevent seizures. So those were just a few of the important things that I have learned about healthy pregnancies and complications of pregnancy during my rotation this month, I really have learned a lot. I've seen a lot of patients with these different conditions. I've seen about five patients with preeclampsia. I've seen probably the same amount with gestational diabetes. I've seen many patients with hypertension of pregnancy, and many patients who were GBS positive who did quite well just receiving antibiotics right before labor. So whether you're currently pregnant, looking to get pregnant, or were just curious about pregnancy, I hope you got a lot out of this episode and thank you for listening. <laughs>